Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm talking about overcoming estrogen dominance with my guest Magdalena Schwalaki. So for those who don't know, Magdalena is the founder of Hormones Balance, an online community dedicated to helping women to rebalance their hormones naturally. Magdalena is a certified nutrition coach, herbalist, a published best-selling cookbook author, speaker and educator. She's got a long history of hormonal challenges. Her health crisis was the direct result from a highly stressful life in advertising, starting with Graves and Hashimoto's disease, both autoimmune conditions causing thyroid failure, to adrenal issues and estrogen dominance. Today she is in full remission, lives a symptom-free life and teaches women how to find their sacred hormone balance with her books, online programs and education. So welcome to the podcast, Magdalena. Thank you so much for having me. Very You're exciting. Welcome. Yeah, I'm excited to chat about estrogen dominance today. I we were speaking before we hit record and I said how I've mentioned that term in pretty much every podcast episode that I do because it's such a huge problem these days. And especially the ladies listening, they've probably got some degree of estrogen dominance. But I want you to talk a little bit more to start off with, with your health journey. Um, you can take as long as you want because I know it's probably lots of ups and downs and I'm particularly interested in hearing your struggles with both um, both thyroid conditions, because I, I think most commonly Hashimoto's, the underactive version is what most people have, but I, you don't really commonly hear people having both Graves and Hashimoto's, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So, you know, since you mentioned that, it's, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's in 2008 and Graves seven years prior to that. Um, and we often talk about our condition, our health journey from the time we were diagnosed. The truth is that all of that probably started way, way earlier, you know, and, and it's just never been addressed and it's finally manifested in the form of an autoimmune disease. Right. But so when I think about it, you know, anything from the time I was born, um, to a highly stressful mom, very difficult birth. Um, but also in having, um, not being a breastfed baby, because my mom was one of those in the seventies subscribed to the nurse's advice of giving me a formula right away instead of being breastfed. And not surprisingly, I developed, I've, I've had food sensitivities ever since I was a baby. And, you know, it's, um, and, and that back then it would they'll manifest in the form of a lot of very weak immune system. I was already, um, in a hospital in the first month with pneumonia and they put me on broad spectrum antibiotics to having later eczema. And as I grew into my twenties and thirties, um, it became cystic acne, severe PMSs. And, and the interesting thing is that, you know, if, uh, my sister, for example, was born two years later and my mom um, knew better by then and what did breastfeed her. And, uh, and my sister never had any of these uh, food sensitivity problems the way I did. 
So, you know, I think the most profound um, moment for me came when, when I think about it um, now is, is when I, you know, when I had cystic acne. So I was covered literally everywhere here. I still have scars. Um, I had it on my chest. I had it on my back. I had it on my butt. And, um, and I grew up in a tropical country. I grew up in Malaysia where I was there from like age 15 till I was 32. So, you know, you wear uh, summer clothes all year long, right? And so you imagine like having to be fully covered up just to, just to, um, you know, deal with that embarrassment and shame of that. And especially when you're just a young woman being really embarrassed by it. And I remember one of my friends was getting married, also her maid of honor, and she um, designed this dress for, for me. And it was all, you know, you can imagine open here, open back, right? And I said, there's no way I'm going to be wearing this. She's like, you know, just put on makeup and it's all going to be good. And the thing with cystic acne, right? For those of you who have it, you know that you can cover it sort of on the face, but on the back and the front, first of all, you sweat. Number two is like, you see these little volcanoes all over your, your skin. It's terrible. And I thought, you know what? As a 20 something year old, I should not be having zits. Like this just doesn't make sense. And and that's what led me towards the path of uh, discovering food sensitivities. And in my case, it was gluten, dairy, eggs that were causing all of this, all of that um, acne. And when I got off um, those foods and started doing what I didn't know back then, what we now call the elimination diet, right? Eliminating the highly inflammatory foods. Um, not only my skin improved significantly, but my energy levels went up. I didn't have those afternoon slumps anymore you know, my uh, PMS has got a lot better. And I had these migraines from hell where I would never leave the house without a painkiller. And if I did, I had heart palpitations because I'm like, what if I get a headache and I can't, it wasn't even headaches, well, migraines. So, you know, I think that was the early start of that. Um, but I will tell you, you know, when I look at my photos back from Malaysia, when I was like 15, 16 years old, I'm in, the, I'm in a yard in school and I'm wearing like this sweater, like the way I'm wearing right now, right? Except it's a tropical country. It's hot as hell. Why, why am, I, why am I wearing during the day? It wasn't in the evening, right? Why am I wearing a full on sweater? And the answer is because I already was having problems with my thyroid. So I think that autoimmune components started way, way earlier uh, than I realized. And, you know, and, and I think with hormones is, probably it's not going to surprise anyone when I say your hormones don't just fail like that. Like one day you wake up and like your period is difficult and you know, you've got depression and, um, and you've got terrible pains and suddenly endometriosis shows up. It's, it's years um, of doing things unconsciously um, that, you know, to lead, that leads to that point. So I was diagnosed with Graves in late twenties um, and then put on thyroid blockers, <laughs> as you would, right? They wouldn't, wasn't addressing the autoimmune component at all. Didn't change my diet uh, too much back then. And then they came back with a vengeance in 2008. I was then diagnosed with Hashimoto. So I was super lucky to be diagnosed that quickly because as you, uh, I'm sure covered on your, with your audience, like thyroid conditions are one of the most underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed conditions. And, uh, and women struggle so much with that. So I was really lucky to, and I was diagnosed based on the fact that I was severely exhausted. Uh, it was an exhaustion you just could not describe. It wasn't just a fatigue. Um, having, I started having anxiety attacks, which I had never had before. I'm a pretty, I'm an intense like type A personality, but I'm not like anxiety is not part of my makeup. You know, it's like I'm always kind of confident and I know where I'm going. Suddenly I started having a lot of doubts and my mood swings were from hell. Um, and so combine that with estrogen dominant symptoms. So having PMSs from health started realizing I'm, I'm having a lot of lumps on my breast, 
Then I went and get my thyroid um, scanned and I had thyroid nodules, another symptom of estrogen dominance, which I hope, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about um, in a second. So that was a real big wake up moment. And this was a time when I was living in China in Shanghai with a very stressful job. I used to work in advertising as a strategic planner, a very glamorous job of being in a different country every week. Uh, my friends used to call me and ask me, I'm not going to ask you, how are you? I'm going to ask you, where are you? And I thought that was really fun to say that. Uh, but after two years, it kind of got really tiring, uh, where you suddenly realize, you know, you're putting your body through airport food, hotel food, drinking water from plastic bottles, not sleeping enough. You are the person on the Sunday night taking a flight somewhere, you know, in Asia, right? And you know, to be ready for the Monday presentation, being overworked, but also being a semi-professional athlete. So I would like arrive, say at a hotel at say 7, 8 p.m. on a Sunday, I'll still go into the gym and like work out till 9 p.m., right? And then only go to bed. So it was just, I mean, when I think about it now, I'm like, ah, <laughs> I'm stressed just listening thinking, to that. Right? <laughs> and, and we're still, it's like, you know, I used to joke and say that you, you know, I, I'll sleep when I die because Living in Shanghai was so exciting and I had so many incredible friends and there was always so many things to do and parties to go to and, you know, and, and train for some next event competition and stuff. So it was, um, you know, I think my body paid the price. So I think 2008 after the diagnosis with Hashimoto's, I didn't know back then I had estrogen dominance. I just, just the diagnosis was just for Hashimoto's. I'm just, you know, uh, reflecting on it now. It's pretty clear I had screaming symptoms. And that's really what um, I think was a big wake up moment for me to change my lifestyle. I quit my job. I moved to the United States. I went to school for that. Um, went to nutrition school, later became an herbalist and started doing a lot of things for myself, just realizing that, you know, um, like this is not going to go away unless I really make some significant changes. And so um, it was, you know, it was interesting, you know, because I didn't have the knowledge that I have now, but I did surrender to this intuition, this little voice that was telling me that even though we sold the agency in China and I was walking away from 70% of my payout, which you had, I had worked for 10 years for, you know, and it's when you sell the agency, there was a big chunk of money to be paid out over a course of two years. And I just collected the first 30% and I thought, whatever I'm going to earn out in the 70%, you know, that I'm walking away from now is probably what I'll have to pay my medical bills later because I was so sick. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, that was then. And over the past course of 10 years, reverse Hashimoto's did not, never had grace again. Um, and, um, you know, instead of really working hard, I would say I've been doing this for the past decade, but estrogen dominance will probably uh, became a real passion in the past five years, um, especially when, when I started having hair loss and that wasn't, and my thyroid was in a perfectly good shape and I didn't have any other symptoms. So I was like, huh, why am I having a hair loss? And, and, and I was, again, super lucky to see a functional doc here in the U.S. And she tested my uh, estrogen metabolites. And, she, and they were just outrageously, um, you know, high on the, 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 the problematic metabolites. that the dirt, I call it dirty estrogens. They were causing the hair loss. And that also explained why I was having so many problems with my thyroid nodules and lumpy breasts and uh, terrible PMSs and always having swollen fingers and limbs, couldn't take my rings off, right? Um, uh, terrible mood swings, you know, all of that was suddenly coming together. So I decided to really focus on estrogen dominance because, you know, as we're going to talk about the symptoms, it's like, you tell me, do you actually know a single woman in your life 
uh, or you yourself that who hasn't suffered from any of the symptoms. Almost no woman in a developed country wouldn't have some degree of estrogen dominance, yet so few people talk about it. Even so few of my colleagues, practitioners, really truly understand what to do with estrogen dominance as a condition. So I decided there was time to, to really bring it out and, um, and, and create a platform to, to talk about it. Yeah, it's really important. And people might hear, with, might hear the term high estrogen or estrogen. Um, they're just thinking of things like breast cancer. And that's really important that you kind of get things under control now to affect your future health and disease risk. But it's all of these other symptoms that people just brush off as being normal or part of being a woman. So the PMS, um, feeling like a different person half of the month, debilitating cramps and pains and migraines, just because they've got a strong family history of those things or their friends are complaining about it, it doesn't mean that they're normal. But with the symptoms, so you've listed many symptoms and I'm sure there's a ton more, but should these, when it comes to estrogen dominance, are these symptoms all month long present or is it just at certain times of the cycle that they flare up? I mean, some of them like, you know, having thyroid um, nodules or having less lumpy breasts, that, that can be there throughout the cycle, right? So, um, you know, having hair loss, should we go through the symptoms maybe yeah. just to, mm -hmm. to wrap it up? So, yeah. So, you know, for women who are still menstruating, I mean, any kind of menstruation problems, whether you've got heavy periods, like you're bleeding 20 days out of a year, whether you're having incredibly painful periods, you were in a fetal position. That was me in a fetal position for two days, like a day before your period or first two days of your period, right? And you can function without some significant painkillers, whether it's your period is sporadic or just shows up whenever, right? So, um, any of those um, or mid-cycle spotting um, is another uh, possibility of estrogen dominance. That is, uh, that's all very correlated with issues with estrogen. And then the... You know, if you have um, a lot of other things, so we talked about thyroid nodules, but also hypothyroidism is um, very correlated. A lot of women who have estrogen dominance also have low thyroid function, and that's because estrogen binds up um, uh, as a thyroid hormone. So that's part of the part of the reason. You know, but you also have things like fibroids, right? How many women in this um, in developed countries, whether it's UK or US, lose their um, uteruses because of fibroids? Um, endometriosis, which is one of the most painful conditions one woman can experience, is also fueled by inflammation, but also estrogen dominance and uh, having excess estrogen also is, is, is inflammatory, right? So it's, it's, it's definitely a huge contributing factor. Um, you know, uterine polyps, um, another thing that a lot of women are diagnosed with um, can be due to estrogen dominance. Um, you know, we kind of alluded to mood swings. I mean, they can be you know, like, like you said about PMS is like, we are told as women is, is part of the deal, right? Of being a woman, same thing. Like every guy has a joke, right? About his girlfriend and wife having that time of a month and like really losing it on him. And first of all, I want to establish that when we go through a cycle, it's normal because when you look at what your hormones do during that time, it's normal that you have time when you're really open and vivacious and, and outgoing. And you've got like a lot of creative ideas and you want to connect with people and at times when you really want to be by yourself and, and that's okay. It's just a question of, are you want to be by yourself in a fetal position, depressed and having suicidal thoughts and being pissed off at the whole world and biting off people's heads, you know, or are you just quietly being there introverted by yourself? There's a difference in those, right? And it doesn't have to be that drastic uh, picture that I've just drawn. And, you know, having mood swings, I mean, as much as it's a joke in us, our society, 
the truth of the matter is that they can be hugely compromising of our relationships, you know, with our employers, with our colleagues, with our, the people that we love the most. And you come out of that and you're like, that's not the person I ever, I, that's not who I am, you know, in a core. Right. But it's just, it's just a hormone um, that can really, you know, go crazy. So another interesting one, I think, um, when it comes to, you know, um, estrogen dominance is where we store fat is an indication also of hormonal problems. So women, you know how we call women pearl, uh, pear shaped and apple shaped, right? So apple shaped are those women who store a lot of fat around their tummy, and that tends to be more metabolic related. So like high testosterone, high blood sugar levels, high inflammation, right? Women, well, guess what? Women who are highly estrogenic, uh, so that would, for example, be me. Um, if I put on weight, it goes straight into my butt. It goes into my thighs. And it's not just fat, but it's also cellulite. And the thing is that, you know, you have women who exercise like five times um, a week. They go to the gym and, and, and they just can't lose that weight, right? And it's like, what's going on here? And it creates this incredible frustration and disappointment and kind of like obsessive, you know, exercise um, behavior. And the truth is that unless you correct the estrogen dominance component, uh, it's going to be really hard to lose, uh, to lose weight there. So I would say, you know, and so those are the main ones. And, and the last one I'll just mention, you know, which is more for mature women um, issues. But I think that was, um, you know, a big um, thing for me to really, I think, address estrogen dominance very seriously is the estrogenic cancers uh, that can result from years of having estrogen dominance. So those would be the most common one is breast cancer. Um, this is the leading uh, form of cancer amongst breast cancer um, patients. And, you know, and so things like that, what like Angelina Jolie had with double mastectomy and all that, those are like genetic, um, genetic uh, cancers that are a lot more rare um, as compared to the estrogen receptor positive form of breast cancer, as well as ovarian, uterine cancer, thyroid cancer. And lastly, um, one of the fastest growing cancers now too is lung cancer in non-smokers. So suddenly a person goes like, why am I having lung cancer when I never smoked? My mom never smoked. Like, where did I come from? Um, it can be estrogenic. So, you know, the part of just to add on to, like we were talking a little bit about this history before, you know, one of the ways of knowing that you have, um, that you have a tendency towards being more estrogenic, right? And that that can go, can be very correlated with your genetics. And so one of the big realizations that I had was when I looked at both sides of my family, I have estrogenic cancer deaths on both sides, my mom's side and my dad's side. And you're talking about ovarian, uterine, and breast cancer in all three categories, right? So that was a huge aha moment for me, you know, and all my aunts, by the way, had the uteruses removed like in their forties and fifties already, right? And then they ended up dying from another form of cancer later. Uh, which kind of is an interesting point too, right? Like removing a uterus because you have a big fibroid is not going to solve the problem. <laughs> You're not addressing estrogen dominance. It's just going to manifest in some other way. And so what are you going to do? Remove the thyroid, remove the breast, remove the uterus, remove the ovaries, right? Just to prevent it from, from happening. It's crazy, right? So, um, so that was a huge motivator for me as well. And, you know, I would say like, if you have estrogenic cancers, like I mentioned, running on both sides of the family and in the early stages, like as a young woman, you're showing a lot of signs of estrogen dominance. I'll say, do something about it now. It's never too early to begin because yeah. the choices that you make now and the status of your health currently 
it's going to affect things. Things like cancers can take 20, 30 years to develop. So like you said, they don't just pop up overnight. You don't just develop cancer out of the blue. It's been manifesting for years, if not decades. Absolutely. I, I believe with any hormone, they're very like, I call them like Goldilocks hormones. They need to be just right in order for us to feel great. Um, and estrogen dominance is way more common, I think, than low estrogen. But I think we should touch on maybe a few symptoms of low estrogen and how that can be just potentially as problematic when it comes to um, symptoms. Yeah, so low estrogen is when you start typically going into menopause, right? So it's associated with a lot of the symptoms. However, I do see that in more and more young women too, starting to experience that. So low estrogen will manifest in the form of having, having hot flashes, having a lot of memory issues, your periods are very regular, infertility problems, um, having cognitive function issues. Um, you know, estrogen is also super important in cardiovascular health in women. But also in our bone building, you know, we think about calcium as a bone builder, which is like one of the many things that are required, right? And uh, guess what? Estrogen, progesterone are both hormones that one builds, the other one fills in um, the, um, all the different compounds into the bone. So, um, so yeah, so those are some of the symptoms. And you can, you can be low on estrogen and still have estrogen dominant symptoms. And the reason why that happens is because the way you break down so let me just actually step back a little bit because I think this is important information to know. First of all, I don't want to demonize estrogen because we need it as, a, as women, right? You wouldn't have a butt and a period and be a woman if you didn't have sufficient levels of estrogen. You won't be able to sleep and function and think you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you had no estrogen. So that is not the problem. It's not the overall amount of estrogen that is the issue. It's the biggest issue is it kind of goes back to the two forms of estrogen that are present um, that kick and occur and, and they can both be present at the same time. The biggest one um, is what, what I call the, you know, the um, clean and dirty estrogen. So how your body breaks down estrogens to clean estrogens or protective estrogens, right? That actually do the work um, and, and make you feel good, right? Versus the dirty estrogens that are probably causing problems like the symptoms that we talked about earlier. So, and guess what? The, the breakdown of those estrogens happens in the liver, right? So that's like a big aha moment for a lot of women uh, realizing that, oh, to fix my estrogen, I actually need to work on my liver and my gut. And, and really those, those are the primary focus areas. The second way estrogen can happen, uh, estrogen dominance can happen is when you have too little progesterone as compared to estrogen. And these two are like two dancing partners. You know, if you see a dance competition, and, and if one partner is overly enthusiastic and animated and overdressed and the other one is kind of shy and quiet, it doesn't look good and this couple is never going to win anything, right? So with, with estrogen, progesterone is the same thing. And so having an adequate amount of these two is vital. So going back to what we talked about, um, low estrogen levels, right? So when you start having low estrogen levels, why, can't, why can it be that you still have estrogen dominance? Because even though you're low, the way you're breaking them up is unfavorable. And, and or um, the, even though the both of them dropped, estrogen, progesterone dropped, your progesterone is still a lot, lot lower than estrogen. So that explains, you know, we have a quiz on, on my website and on a regular basis, we get emails from people saying, your quiz sucks. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I, I, it says I'm estrogen dominant, yet I'm low on estrogen. And even though we explain it, 
um, you know, that you can be both. I think most people don't really read in detail. And so they kind of jump into conclusions. But yes, it's absolutely possible. Yeah, I say that all the time. And I have people coming to me saying, I've had my estrogen checked, everything's good, but they still have all of the symptoms um, that obviously estrogen dominance, but it's because the progesterone just isn't keeping up. So in terms of testing, would you just go off symptoms or are there any good tests that you would recommend to check estrogen, but also the metabolization? Because I agree that that's just as, if not more important. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's an important question, right? And I don't know what testing is available um, in the UK, but I would just say, regardless where you are, conventional doctors, OBGYNs, like when you go in there and say, look, you know, my period hasn't come back in three months and, or, you know, whatever issue you're having, right? They will test your hormones, uh, your estrogen, progesterone through blood, through um, serum. And that's completely useless. Doesn't show you anything. <laughs> um you know, I, when I was in private practice uh, back in the day, I will have women, and you probably see the same thing, women coming in with test results, having screaming symptoms of estrogen dominance, having fibroids, having missing periods, can't get pregnant, right? And, um, and she shows me the results and it says that, you know, she's in perfect health um, hormones-wise, right? So blood is completely useless uh, for steroid hormones, such as estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, DHEA, testosterone. You don't, they're great for other things like thyroid, your thyroid hormones are great, your blood sugar levels, all these other ones, yes, but not steroid hormones. So, you know, um, yeah, I, I, do, I do believe that, you know, if you are just having lingering symptoms of estrogen dominance, you don't have a lot of budget to spend on testing. Um, in the United States, none of it is covered, right? So it's out of pocket kind of a thing. And uh, then, you know, then going by symptoms and just um, journaling, in writing out, what are you feeling? How are you feeling? And then implementing those protocols that um, that I teach, right? And it's and it's nothing weird or difficult to do. It's, it's just like, you know, hopefully we get to talk about this, but it's really pretty no nonsense, um, simple stuff that you can just modify some things in your diet. But then, you know, for someone who, some people need like, um, I do believe that people who should test are people who wouldn't take action unless they have the proof, you know, the proof is there in front of them. They need something and they want to do the before and after. Like they want to see that before they change the diet, they want to see the after and that only motivates them to make changes. Then you, then you know yourself, if that's you, then go and test. Um, and, and then the other form of testing I recommend is for women who have a history of estrogenic cancers or you have a rampant uh, family history of estrogenic cancers, then I would highly recommend testing. And the testing that I like the most is urine testing. So are you guys able to order Dutch yeah. in the UK? Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. So that's my favorite kind of testing. Um, what I like about it is that shows you a lot of different things, but the biggest one since we're on estrogen dominance is how your body breaks down to those d dirty and clean estrogens, if you will. And whether you have the genetic components to it, then that it doesn't code for that basically you don't detoxify of estrogens very easily um and then based on that you you might you know you're going to learn what are the things that you can add some supplements or diet in order to um switch that balance the other one um, what, what is unfortunate about dutch testing is that the, their progesterone markers are just um uh, it's an estimate it's not an actual number so I wish there, there was a test two in one. Um, so for progesterone, I do like saliva testing. I find that to be accurate and, um, and I like that, but saliva testing doesn't show you the metabolites. So there's, there's pros and cons to two of them. 
but either way, they are still better than uh, the blood testing. And you're probably the same as me. I have people coming to me because they know that I run the Dutch tests and I have a whole, if anyone's interested in that, I have a whole episode with Dr. Carrie Jones, who's the medical director yes, of Precision great. Analytical. Um, I think it's number 25. So it's right back at the beginning, but a really good in-depth episode. Um, I have people coming to me just wanting to run a Dutch test. And I, I always tell them we can, if you really want to, if you're a data driven person, but I'd rather you spend that £300 or $300 on treatment then getting a test that's just going to confirm my suspicions already we can just tell off symptoms that you're going to probably have high cortisol levels your melatonin is probably going to be low your um, estrogen is going to be high and progesterone is going to be lower so it's just going to confirm everything and i'd rather you put that money especially if there's a budget that we need to work with um, we might as well just see how we get on for a few months do the basics that we were going to do anyway and then if necessary and you're still symptomatic at that point, then we could go in with a test and see where we're at in terms of a baseline. Do you agree yeah. with that? Absolutely, I do. I will add, I mean, just to reemphasize, for, for people who have a history of breast cancers, I do suggest to test every six months to a year, um, you know, at, at least a, once a year, just to make sure that you have things really in, in really good check. And so there's no recurrence um, of that. But otherwise, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah being proactive rather than reactive and waiting until something happens waiting until you get a diagnosis we don't want to we don't want to do that and with treating um estrogen dominance there's two schools of thought so either like just push down estrogen just reduce and take things like dim and calcium deglucurate to lower the estrogen levels but then there's the other people who are saying we just need to boost progesterone so we just need to match kind of the levels of the two i personally do a little bit of both especially if the metabolites are um, really high and the bad type, what do you say with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, same as you, I, I actually like doing both. Um, that's why, you know, in my latest book, um, overcoming estrogen dominance, we do have, um, some foods that are phytoestrogen that do contain phytoestrogen, such as flaxseed, for example. Um, and, uh, or drinking, you know, that's what I'm drinking right now, uh, red raspberry tea and, um, and so that's something that there's also, it has an estrogenic effect that, that is, you know, having, adding estrogens through food or through herbs, it's not the problem. It's if, if anything, like for somebody who's going through perimenopause, like myself, like I actually want those phytoestrogens in my, in my life, right. To bring those estrogen levels up. The issue is how you break them down. That is the bigger issue. And so you know, so again, it goes back to the health of the liver and the gut because that's where the breakdown happens of, of estrogen. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's and. And with the phytoestrogens, a, a big debatable subject is soy. Where are you? So we'll the mainly with my audience, the premenopausal. So um, let's say from 18 to 35, that's kind of the age range yeah. of this um, my audience. With those people, let's say that they're dealing with estrogen dominance, so they're not near menopause at this point, do you think soy and these phytoestrogens are a good thing? Because again, some people say that they increase estrogen and they just make things worse, whereas this other people say that it actually lowers the bad types of estrogen. Yeah. Um, I know there's studies and things done on both sides. Exactly. So that's exactly true. And and that is the confusing part um, on you know, when you see studies that show both, right, that can, they can help and they can uh, worsen symptoms. Here's an interesting thing is that when those studies are conducted, I've reached out to a couple of those institutions that conducted them. 
asking them to disclose what kind of soy they've used. Was it a non-GMO soy, like an organic soy, or was it a GMO-based soy, right? And I never heard back from any of them. This is like one of the most frustrating things is like, unless maybe you're a professor at Harvard, like they don't really respond to you. Um, and so I think that's the one big part of that. The other thing with soy, so my, my simple answer, I stay away from it um, just because of the negative study that do exist. And I feel like we can find safe phytoestrogens in other foods and herbs that doesn't have to carry that what if happens. The other thing with soy is that not all soy is made the same, right? If you have soy in front of, um, you know, things like soy milk or tofu, um, which is highly processed or God forbid, all these soy, you know, meat lookalikes, right? For vegetarians and vegans. I mean, that stuff is just pure toxic. But if you talk about stuff like um, tempeh, a fermented form of soy, right? That is comes in a natural form that's not uh, processed in any way. And, um, and the fermentation is what preserves the, um, the, the, the soy, then, you know, this is a different food altogether, right? So I'll say if somebody doesn't have a problem with soy, then having things like the soy sauce or having soy um, in a form of tempeh, that's perfectly fine. But I will stay away from things like soy milk, all the soy-like products, meat-like products, um, even, you know, silken tofu. I mean, you know, someone who grew up, like I grew up in Asia, right? And let me tell you, when you go to the markets, they make the soy overnight, right? And then you go there and they have these big pots and then they scoop out the soy tofu into, into a, uh, a container. If you don't eat it by the end of the day, it's going to go bad. If you don't eat it, then you put it in the fridge. If you don't eat it by the following day from the fridge, it's going to go bad. That's how quickly it goes bad. And so imagine the amount of preservatives you also need to put in there in order to preserve it, right? So there is an element of that too. Um, and soy milk is just nasty altogether. So I would just stay away from that. So generally, I would say there's so many other interesting foods to explore. <laughs> you know, it's just like, let it go. Not risk, we'll not risk soy just while it's a, um, a bit of an uncertain thing at the moment. But interesting, you brought up like um, the Asian population. They have lower levels of things like breast cancer and things like soy have been kind of claimed to help with that. Are there any other lifestyle habits or dietary things that they do that you think could be contributing to lower levels of estrogen and breast cancer risk? Well, mind you, that is changing. Uh, okay. So, you know, it's um, uh, things like hot flashes. So like things like menopause was unknown in Japan, for example, for generations. Uh, but it's, it's, um, it's pretty commonplace now. And so in China, you know, I spend so much time living in China. Um, these things are changing now, right? So but why did it not have a problem before? I mean, I think it's a combination of things, which isn't one thing. It's everything from, you know, there was no going out. I mean, even if you were going out, it was a grandma who was cooking on the side of the road, right? So it was all home cooked food. Um, you know, every Chinese family has a grandma. It's a very communal living. So you live with your family, you live with your, with your parents, like something that in Western countries we don't do. So grandma is always there cooking, right? Or the mom is always cooking. So it was always freshly cooked food. Um, hardly ever heated up the following day. Talk about histamines, right? <laughs> it's always fresh food. Fruit that was came from the markets, very little processed foods. Um, I think their stress levels were very different from where they are here, right? I mean, you know, the list just goes on. The kind of products that we used to use was a lot more natural versus the xenoestrogens, like the, you know, skincare products, the lotions and all that that we use from, um, from uh, mainstream brands today, right? I mean, that's a huge source of um, xenoestrogens as well. Those 
dirty estrogens, if you will, right? So, you know, it's, um, yeah, I think it's a whole combination of things. Do you love coffee, but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems? Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores. Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity, or suppressed because of things like chronic infections, and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the reishi can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics, the regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. What are your thoughts on animal protein? So there's the obvious quality difference as well, but there's some um, people with endometriosis who are told they need to go plant-based, they need to go vegan because just the natural growth hormones found in meat, even like grass-fed beef, um, is, is causing inflammation and things like dairy products have... Um, insulin-like growth factors in there and obvious estrogen from the animal are you kind of somewhere in the middle um yeah i am somewhere in the middle so first of all you know don't go and buy uh, so dairy i'm i'm absolutely off um i do recommend to be off dairy unless you identify that um, dairy is something you can have occasionally and it doesn't affect you and then having like a good you know parmigiano reggiano or having a good burrata or whatever um, although I prefer like hard, hard cheeses and, and, um, you know, then it's fine. But especially if you're doing the elimination diet at first, you really want to stay out of, um, of dairy for the whole time now, about meat, you know, it's, um, I mean, some of the unhealthiest people I've met when I was in private practice were vegans, right? So just because you're vegan, it doesn't guarantee you that you can, but, you know, to your point about like growth, growth hormones or antibiotics are being to an animal, you know, I mean, I think solution is pretty simple. Just go and buy meat from uh from your farmer who you know who doesn't do that right it's a it's a 
grass-fed animal uh, from farmers markets and then people a lot of times push back and say yeah but I can't afford it it's expensive and I'll say you don't have to have a lot of it you know just just scale back on your on your meat right it's, it's really as simple as that you know part of the um, reason why I don't like women or I don't advocate 100% plant-based diet I do advocate a 70 to 80% plant-based diet so like whenever I have a meal I always look at my plate and I look at it and say how much of vegetables do I have in here versus the amount of meat you and I'm, I don't go there and wait and stuff because I think that's just that's just obsessive behavior uh, but it's just looking at your plate you know and part of the reason why I do like animal protein in the diet of women is because so many people are suffering from blood sugar balance problems and, and, you know, really animal protein, especially having some first thing in the morning, I'm a big advocate of um, breakfasts that are high in protein, fat, proteins, fat, and fiber. I call it PFF kind of breakfast and not loaded with carbohydrates and fruits, right? Things like fruit and, and um, oatmeal. And I mean, this is what we eat as Westerners, right? So I feel like meat can really help balance that. You might say, well, what about beans, right? I can do a lot of protein and get my proteins and fiber from, from beans and legumes. And I agree that the, the issue again is that so many people have such compromised uh, digestive system that they don't tolerate beans very well. Unless you do certain legumes, like for example, lentils, like the yellow lentils are very easy, or red lentils, sorry, are easier to digest. They're quick to cook, but it get, kind of gets boring after a while, right? So but generally beans, you know, are harder to digest and, and many of us just can't digest them properly. So then what do you do, right? Where do you get your protein from? And most importantly, how do you sustain your blood sugar balance that you don't go into these hypoglycemic episodes, which are hugely detrimental for your inflammation and your overall hormone balance? Yeah, you're not going to have balanced hormones if your blood sugar is spiking and crashing all day long. That is a huge stress to the body, particularly the female body. So you need to start there. That's like the number one job of the endocrine system is to regulate blood sugar. So if you're not doing Absolutely. that properly, it doesn't really care if you have a face full of acne, your hair's falling out, or if your period is um, MIA. But yeah. the reason I'm guessing why your diet is 70 to 80% vegetables is the fiber. And if you're constipated and backed up, then that is a risk factor for estrogen dominance as well. But could oh, you talk time. a bit more about the gut health and estrogen connection? So I just mentioned maybe a couple of like two big things. One is constipation, right? So if you're not evacuating properly every day, and, and I don't mean like just go and have a bit of a bowel movement, but I'm, we're talking about a complete bowel movement where you feel emptied, when you have a nice uh, poop that looks like a banana shaped and is in one piece and it doesn't smell awful and it doesn't fall apart, it doesn't sink, it, it, it doesn't float, sorry, it only sinks. You know, that's, um, that's when you, ha you know, have a good bowel movement. When you're constipated, what happens is that all these estrogens we talked about get recycled, right? And so that causes a lot of, and not, not just estrogens, but it's also, it's all your, your heavy metals, right? Your pesticides, everything gets recycled and the liver gets hugely taxed having to process them one more time. So that's a, you know, that's one big issue. Um, the, the second issue is there is something really interesting about the bacteria in the gut, right? I mean, we, we, we are discovering so much more about the microbiome and its connection to depression, ability to lose weight, and just our overall, you know, well-being and ability to break down histamines and oxalates and all these issues, right? Well, guess what? It turns out there is a subset of bacteria in the gut called the estrobolum. The estrobolum um, codes for enzymes that break down estrogens. So, you know, um, 
and, and, and just like a little side note to this in some ways that it connects is that when they studied uh, women with breast cancer, there was an interesting correlation, not a causation, but correlation between women with breast cancer and the lack of diversity of their microbiome, which versus, you know, compared to healthy women, right? Which is, and it's not about like you just chugging down a lot of probiotics, you know, after listening to this call, but it's really, we're talking about diversity of the microbiome and not just having a lot of the, the 12, you know, um, strains that you, the, your probiotic might be having. So, and then the other thing I'll mention on that is that, um, you know, as much as I'm a big fan of flaxseed because it's a phytoestrogen and it really helps to, I mean, flaxseed is just so amazing in so many ways. It blocks the receptor for the dirty estrogens to come through and it gives you natural estrogens, you know, to, to boost them a little bit, helps you regulate your cycle and all of that good stuff. But, you know, like I would say one out of 20 women in our community will report back who, who done, for example, our seed cycling um, or just incorporated flaxseed based on my recommendation will write back and say, you know, it really hasn't worked for me. Like my breasts are really tender. Um, that's another symptom I forgot to mention. Fibrocystic breasts, lumpy breasts is another symptom, right? Of estrogen dominance. And, and they'll say, you know, my, my breast just got worse and my PMS got worse. And so obviously the first thing we say is stop, like you don't want to do that. But it fascinated me why, why there are some women who react, have this paradoxical response to it. So I went to start, I went to research and what I had found is that, um, that are, that they have concluded in this one study that it's the, your ability of break, having the right kind of bacteria and don't hate me for this, but this paper doesn't cite which kind of bacteria, which strain it is. Um, but it's the bacteria that is um, that needs to be there in order to break down the lignans. That's what's present, right, in the flaxseed, in order to make them bioavailable for the body and do the, the estrogenic work that we, the beneficial estrogenic work we talk about. So, you know, so that's really, it was really interesting to read this, like, oh, um, and then when we message people, women like that saying, do you generally have GI problems, right? The answer is always yes. It's either constipation, they're having a lot of food sensitivities, they have um, IBS, they've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's and the list goes on. So there's definitely a correlation between those two. So anyway, I mean, you tell me, do you know anyone who's got a messed up digestion and healthy hormones? Because no, I've never I come across <laughs> And that's usually the first place I start, even in people who don't have any obvious or they don't tell me about any digestive symptoms sometimes they think that bloating's normal and I tell them that it's definitely not um yeah. but yeah sometimes the people who have regular bowel movements like no bloating no gas but terrible periods and terrible endometriosis and autoimmune disease they often have the worst gut health in terms of infections and parasites and SIBO and low stomach acid so it's yes. really crazy and that's definitely the first place to start and I'm glad that you mentioned the um, the estrobolone and if you've got some sort of bacterial overgrowth going on too much bad bacteria that estrogen is just going to keep recirculating over and over again and actually the more that that happens the more toxic and the dirtier um, the term that you use the dirtier the estrogen becomes so that is a definite risk factor for all of those conditions that we've spoken about absolutely another food group um, I wanted to ask about was cruciferous vegetables I'm personally a big fan and things like broccoli sprouts, um, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, because of things like the sulfur in there, they can help with the liver and the fiber, obviously. 
um, can be really good for lowering estrogen, particularly the bad types. But there's a lot of um, debate online. Again, there's a lot of controversy and people contradicting each other. Recently, there's a lot of people hating on cruciferous vegetables, saying how they contain goitrogens, which is obviously true. Um, but that can impair thyroid function and therefore that can increase estrogen levels. But then there's the other people who say that it's going to help with estrogen dominance. I'm on the pro, uh, I'm, I'm all for cruciferous vegetables, not overdoing it and definitely not raw in high amounts. But I'm just wondering where you stand on that. Yeah, I'm completely the same way. And, you know, if you talk to um, any of the thyroid experts like Dr. Isabella Wenz or Dr. Karazian or Ellen Christensen, um, they're on the same boat. And, and you know, you mentioned in cruciferous vegetables inhibit the thyroid function. The, the, the one that is really showing that is soy um, in high amounts that it does. Um, I haven't found studies that actually connect cruciferous vegetables to the thyroid itself. I have anecdotally been told, I remember once I did this talk, it was, um, I used to do a lot of talks when I lived in New York, you know, and a lot of women's groups and co-ops and all the places. And, and there was, um, there were people occasionally who come on and say, you know, I uh, went on this health bench and I'll do every day, I'll do a smoothie with raw kale. And, and, and they were talking about like a bunch of kale, right? Every day in the smoothie. And they were convinced they got hypothyroidism right after that. And so I don't want to dismiss it, um, but you know, you really shouldn't be eating raw kale every day. I mean, I think the Scots will tell you they give kale to the pigs, <laughs> which is like on the other extreme side of things. But um, you know, and, and really sauteing them. Well, let me, let me say this, you know, before I started working with estrogen dominance, my whole audience and all my patients in the clinic. And when I was in private practice back in the day, were all Hashimoto's and hypothyroid patients. And, and let me tell you, I have not met a single one of them who would have said, I've cut out all the cruciferous vegetables and I cured my thyroid. Not a single one of yeah, them. Yeah. I'm the same. So if anything, they feel nonsense. better with one or two servings a day, lightly cooked and a range of different types, not just overdoing kale every single day, try and get a range of different ones. I, I'm exactly the same. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in terms of like their nutritional uh, profile and density compared to, for example, lettuce, I always, you know, kind of joke about it, but I'm not saying throw away the goddamn lettuce. Like lettuce has got no nutritional value whatsoever. Zucchinis is another one. Like it's, it's like water, you know, mm -hmm. and, and a bit of tiny bit of fiber. Uh, there's really not much in them. Cucumbers also like, eh. um, you know, substitute that with all the radishes and turnips and all the ones that you mentioned, right? Collard greens. I'm not sure if you guys have that in the UK, um, you know, and broccoli sprouts and having those in, brought into into your daily life, you know, that's going to make a difference in your nutritional profile. And as it is, we are already so nutritionally depleted. Our food is not the same what it used to be. You know, when I look at the studies from before the war, 1930, I think it was 1937, on the nutritional um, content of an apple and potato and whatever, and what we have now is vastly different. I mean, there's like a drop of between 50 to 80% of nutritionally being lower. So you know, just, just pick your battles and, and, um, and not pick your battles, but just pick the right food to incorporate. And I, I'm so much in, in line with you. And I will say, you know, one of my favorites, um, for the, among the cruciferous, which I think are very underestimated are the, uh, the turnips and the radishes because they are so 
pungent, then a lot of people just don't like eating them raw. And I completely get that. Uh, kurabi, I think, is a quite a nice one, although many people don't even know what to do with it, right? Kurabi is great. If you see it the summer in the farmer's market, do get it, peel it off, use it as a, as a stick for hummus or, you know, any kind of a dip. It's just a wonderful... Uh, two things you can do. One is, you know, just slicing them and adding them to your current salads. And even if it's a cooked salad, just having them as raw is perfectly fine. They, they just add a little bit of a, uh, of a punch. But the other one, which a lot of people don't realize, you can actually roast them. And having them roasted, you know, brings up, um, they're actually full of sugars, polysaccharides. And so these sugars get caramelized while getting roasted and they sweeten them, but they still retain their bitter quality. So you have like the sweet, bitter um, elements to it and they just absolutely are wonderful as, as roasted yeah I've done that before as well and I agree they're delicious and I don't eat a lot of turnips or swede or anything like that anymore but I'm definitely gonna expand my palate a little bit more because I want all of the benefits um, are there any other key foods or herbs that you want to talk about either like culinary herbs or supplemental herbs for lowering estrogen either the bad types or just overall yeah so, you know, I think the, um, yeah, let's talk about burdock root and dandelion root. Um, that's, you know, since we, I alluded at the beginning that we, in order to um, address estrogen dominance, we really want to address our liver, right? And, and, and work through the, the liver. So, you know, anything that you add that's bitter in flavor is going to tremendously help your liver. So um, since I mentioned dandelion, I'll just mention dandelion leaf first. So dandelion leaf has more of an efficacy of detoxing your kidneys, but it's uh, but the fact itself that it's bitter, it immediately is going to work on your liver. One of my favorite um, salads, and it's a Tuscan salad in Italy. They they use a lot of dandelion leaf. It's a very bitter leaf, but if you toss it with a little bit of orange, use the orange zest with some olive oil and salt as a dressing. Add a little bit of maybe sliced fennel to it, right, or cucumber or whatever, just to Kind of even out the balance um, of it is just like the basically the orange and the dandelion leaf is just a beautiful combination of bitter meat sweet um, and it just is absolutely delightful but talking about teas you know i love dandelion root and burdock root they are both huge liver movers um, but they also are protective towards the liver so they're protecting your liver from any kind of pesticides or heavy metals that are coming in through food or whatever you're inhaling and um and you know I've had women in our community say that just brewing that tea um, after a meal, it was like they got addicted to it, right? Meaning like they just, their body started craving it. And the cravings is an interest, is a fascinating phenomenon, right? Because cravings is like your body communicating with you what really what needed helps from us, right? And so them craving the better after a meal is basically the body saying, you know, what you been doing for the past two weeks like I really love it give it to me again the simplest way to do this is like a lot of the health food stores these days are selling liver um you know liver detox or liver tonic teas you can get one of those um I personally prefer to use because I'm an herbalist maybe <laughs> is to get loose herbs and just infuse and or, you know infuse them yourself decoct them yourself uh, because it's a root you want to do it a little bit longer um, like half an hour or so um, is when you really extract a lot of the polysaccharides that are super helpful. So yeah, so those are some of my, you know, absolute favorites. And I'll just mention one more because that's the tea that I'm sipping on here right now um, is uh, this is red clover, you know, and 
I think there's like, I did a combination of red clover and uh, red raspberry leaf. And both of them are like real wonderful women's tonics. Um, it's, you know, it's funny, we, we call adaptogens herbs that tend to work more on the HPA and the adrenals, the, the, that axis. But I have found that there are some herbs like these ones, depending on what you need, is going to help you. So for example, if you are having terrible PMSs, it's going to help with that. If you're having uh, no periods is going to help to regulate the period. So it just brings the attention to what's needed. Um, and it's a wonderful tea. It doesn't taste anything terrible. It doesn't taste anything weird. It just actually tastes kind of like black tea would, you know, so a really nice addition to sip on it every day. Yeah. And I love nothing more than brewing. I'm like, I feel like a witch around a cold cauldron, like throwing in all of these herbs and I totally adapt it to how I'm feeling that day, where I'm at in my menstrual cycle. So once you start to understand some of the medicinal properties and learning more about your body and the hormones, you can really craft your own herbal blend. And yeah. especially the weather, like if anyone's watching on video, Magdalena's background right now is absolutely beautiful. And in the UK, it's winter, it's freezing. So I love nothing more than a nice warm herbal tea. But if even if someone's listening in summer, um, I sometimes just brew them in the morning, let them cool and then sip on them throughout the day. So you don't have to be drinking hot tea when it's like 90 degrees outside. <laughs> right, right. Last two things I wanted to ask your opinion on is caffeine and alcohol. Mm. There's yeah. again, people saying um, little bits of caffeine and coffee in particular, if it's good quality, it's good for the liver, it's antioxidants. And then alcohol, everyone brings up, I think resveratrol in red wine. That's like, the, <laughs> they try to see yeah. the benefits um, because there's been some studies on resveratrol for anti-aging and antioxidant protection specifically yeah. for estrogen dominance is it a yes or no for these things okay so um neither it's uh it's gonna be that least favorite answer in this that depends yeah. and, you really, um, and so you really wouldn't know until you cut it out and see how your body reacts to it so let me give you an example i think you know caf caffeinated drinks are not all the same right having a cup of green tea versus having a coffee from a commercial place that is has been sprayed with a lot of different chemicals it's a two different animals. It's those two different uh, drinks. They just happen to have caffeine as a connecting um, denominator, but that's unfair to say. So let me give you an example with, I'm generally not a fan of coffee, um, especially doing, you know, people who are doing like coffee with intermittent fasting. I feel like it messes up women's hormones big time. It's agreed. Coffee, especially on an empty stomach, does increase your blood sugar levels. So you're basically setting yourself up for hypoglycemia first thing in the morning. I personally found that even if I put a lot of butter to it and whatever fat, it ain't gonna make any difference. Um, it's highly inflammatory. There is, it does inhibit. Um, so yes, it is bitter, so it's supposed to help the liver, but it's also working on a on a pathway that also detoxifies us from estrogen. So you, in some ways, you're actually loading up more um, on your liver um, to to making it work a lot harder. I have, you know, I always, we always talk about in our community, you really, you really wouldn't know how you react to coffee unless you cut it out and then reintroduce it and see how you feel. And a lot of women, you know, it's such a highly addictive substance, right? That a lot of people just find it absolutely impossible to give it up, which is also an indication that the more you are addicted to something, the more you actually need to cut it out. The benefit the most. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, so that will be my answer. The other thing is, you know, so let me just tell you when I drink, and this is when I give you an example of caffeine, caffeine, one drink versus another, 
if I drink coffee, my whole body smells, I get hypoglycemic, I don't sleep very well, my PMS is from hell, my body, like I literally have body odor. I generally never use deodorants unless I start drinking coffee. And, and then my moods are, I just become a really mean, mean person. So obviously it messes up with my neurotransmitters, right? Now, do I hear the same thing from matcha tea or from uh, black tea, like a chai tea with no sugar in it? Absolutely not. And so it's, you know, it's two completely different things. And so I do a little bit of caffeine every day. I'll do about a teaspoon of matcha tea, which is an equivalent of an espresso in terms of um, caffeine content, but always after a meal, if you do coffee or anything caffeinated on an empty stomach, you're basically setting yourself up for glycemia. So that's about that. Um, it's really about just experimenting and figuring out what works best for you. And I will tell you that in our community, when women cut out coffee, I mean, their energy goes up, they sleep a lot better, their hormones get a lot more regulated, you know, and this is the, I, I'm talking here about coffee also that's organic, that's not sprayed with anything, it's marketed as being, you know, the, the new type of coffee. Um, and even with that, you know, I don't know what it is in coffee that causes this. Um, I don't think it's a caffeine alone. It's just, it's some other compounds that are, um, that are contributing towards that. Not about alcohol. I mean, there's enough studies to show, you know, women who consume more than five um, alcoholic drinks a week are, have a 27% higher chance of getting breast cancer. So that's something to consider, especially if it's running in your family. But I think it's also, you know, really interesting to find, to figure out for yourself, like what kind of alcohol impacts you the most and how do you feel, right? You know, having a, a glass of beer, which is super high in yeast and very high in histamine might be different from having a shot of tequila, a high quality tequila, right? Now, which time of the day are you doing it could be also making a big difference. For example, one of the things I'm discovering about my own sleep is I'm I'm 48 right now. My sleep is not the same what it used to be. I'm a lot more sensitive to a lot of factors. So I started tracking, you know, what are the things that are really impacting me? And one of the problems with alcohol, you see, is the fact that it really impacts the quality of your sleep. And the closer you drink to the bedtime, the more that it happens. And, you know, and is it alcohol or is it a histamine that causes that, right? Um, you know, histamine is also another big issue. I I don't know whether people are just getting a lot more awareness about histamine um, in, in our society or whether it's, we are just getting so overloaded um, that just more women are reacting to histamines or maybe it's a combination of both. I don't know. But I'm hearing like from almost everyone now, they're having issues with histamine. They're breaking out in rashes. They've got anxiety attacks. They've got all sorts of skin problems. They can't sleep at night. So, you know, I did an experiment of whether is it alcohol that's impacting me or is it the histamine and alcohol that's, um, is, is a histamine that is impacting me? It turns out it's the histamine. It's because I had, a, I had yogurt before going to bed and I woke up at one o'clock in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep until four, right? So, but alcohol also, you know, as there's so many studies showing you how it reduces your deep sleep and your deep sleep is really where all your recovery happens on the cellular level, including, um, you know, your growth hormones get produced when you're in deep sleep. And so alcohol impacts that. So I would say, you know, we still want to enjoy life and live. I, I like the 80-20 rule where you do 80% of the stuff for good health and the 20% you have at times when you have fun, um, you know, and, but if you, you know, if somebody is making it a habit to have three glasses of wine to kind of knock themselves out um, as a coping mechanism to with stress and unhappiness, right, every day. Um, then it's, it's a definite no. And you mentioned about resveratrol, which I will just address this here because I, I find it kind of um, funny and it's just the power of marketing, right? 
you know, French um, winemakers found residual in red wine. And so suddenly red wine from France became, uh, became the shit, right? And so, well, guess what? A bottle of red wine from the Bordeaux province, okay, has got like at the most two milligrams of resveratrol. All the studies that are done on resveratrol, including that help with estrogen um, um, detoxification that we talked about and skewing them towards the clean estrogens away from dirty ones, are based on 150 to 500 milligrams of resveratrol, right? Well, just drink 100 bottles of wine, you'll be fine. <laughs> That's what people are thinking. <laughs> So there you have my answer about respectful yeah, and right. very good marketing. That's what it is. <laughs> it is. I have spoken because histamine for me has been a huge factor. Um, mm. And my, I actually had mast cell activation syndrome. So mine wasn't just like basic um, high, uh, high histamine and histamine intolerance. Mine like exceeded that. But I do have a whole, if anyone's interested and doesn't really know what we're talking about, episode 78 with Beth O'Hara. It's on histamine and mast cells and all of that. So definitely go and check that out. Yeah, Beth is amazing. Yeah, because there is that huge connection with histamine when estrogen's high, histamine raises as well. So especially anyone who's dealing with cyclical symptoms, things get worse around ovulation and pre-period. The times where estrogen is the highest, they could have issues with um, histamine as well. So it's something to look further into, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I always end my episodes with a few more questions for my guests. So the first one is, what's something that you do every day to stay in hormonal harmony? Um, I always make it a point to have an herbal tea. Okay. And my second question, this might tie in, is what's one food, herb or supplement that you couldn't live without? You know, I think broccoli. I just mm-hmm. love it. Yeah. 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 Pretty basic, but it, it's so powerful in so many ways. Yeah. And What's your go-to breakfast? Uh, PFF kind of breakfast. Mm-hmm. So I have breakfast a little bit later in the day, uh, like at about 10, 30, 11. Um, so I do like a form of intermittent fasting, but without any caffeine. Um, and it will typically be a piece of protein, um, hips of uh, vegetables, uh, because we're in winter right now when we are recording this, you know, as uh, we something like steamed, steamed, broccolini or collard greens or broccoli uh, with some nice dressing and um, um, and a piece of sweet potato maybe just to make me feel a little bit fuller um, a lot of nuts and seeds on top of it so that will be my go-to breakfast I will say you know whenever I travel I'll have a breakfast because I'm, sometimes you just have no choice especially being in America you know the best breakfast you can find is oats Right. And then it comes with like a load of, you know, stuff on top of it. That's all super sweet. And, and that's the only breakfast you can have. And there's gluten free, too. And um, and I will say it's like 11 o'clock. You know, say so if I eat that breakfast at eight by 11 o'clock, I want to have caffeine. I'm tired. My brain is I'm brain dead. I got brain fog going on, you know, so it's it's something that I like I always pay the price for it. So. Um, you know, and I've, I've traveled to over 40 different countries. And let me tell you, the more developed countries you go to, they never, ever eat sugar for breakfast. It's always savory. If you go to Japan, it's savory. You go to Turkey, it's savory breakfast. You know, you go to Ethiopia, Peru, go to the markets in the morning. They always have like soups and, and such. It's always savory fruit. So um, that's my absolute go-to. And having grown up in Asia is just so ingrained in me that having, you know, a toast with a uh, jam on it is just absolutely, it, it just feels like a, like a punishment. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? People look at me so strange when I have like a pork chop for breakfast. <laughs> but it's, yeah, just one of those things. People have broth and soup for breakfast. It doesn't have to be the traditional 
um, orange juice and cereal and pancakes and waffles. That's obviously not helping the population because those countries who do that are often the fattest and the sickest. And very last question is, where can people find more from you online and grab your book? So you have the new book, Overcoming Estrogen Dominance, and you very kindly allowed us to do a giveaway. So I'm going to do that this week on my Instagram page when this episode's been released. And you have another great book as well that I share all the time with my clients um, with the hormone kind of balancing recipes. Tell us a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, so it's uh, so the, the latest book, as you said, is Overcoming Estrogen Dominance and it's addressed specifically for all the various symptoms of estrogen dominance, including various protocols for like if you have lumpy breast, endometriosis, fibroids, um, and there's like about 20 different protocols that are that are in there. Um, the, the first book uh, that came out three years ago that you're referencing is called Cooking for Hormone Balance. And so that's a little bit more um, broader that it, it, estrogen dominance is a, is a part of it, but it also covers hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's, menopause, PCOS, um, as some of the conditions. Yeah, both really great resources. And I'm also gonna link some um, freebies that your, you, your team have linked to in the show notes. So there's a hormone quiz, a superfoods list, and a free recipes download as well. So they'll all be attached. So thank you so much, Magdalena. This has been amazing. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom. And I know there's gonna be a ton of women who are gonna benefit from this information. I really appreciate you having me here and spreading the word about estrogen dominance. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health, as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.